Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. In discussions about free speech issues, you'll often hear people say something to the effect of, I disapprove of what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. The quote is typically misattributed to the French Enlightenment thinker Voltaire, when in reality it was written by a Voltaire biographer named Evelyn Beatrice Hall to sort of encapsulate Voltaire's beliefs. But for many free speech advocates like Voltaire and like those of us at FIRE, the quote accurately reflects how we go about our work. This belief was perhaps best exemplified by former ACLU executive director Aryeh Nearer, who in 1977 defended the rights of the National Socialist Party of America, that's the neo-Nazis, to host a march through the town of Skokie, Illinois, after that march was initially blocked by local authorities. At the time, Skokie was home to one of the largest Jewish populations in America. In fact, one in six Skokie residents were Holocaust survivors or were related to one. Nearer himself was Jewish and born in Berlin in 1937, no less. He narrowly escaped to England with his parents and sister when he was only two years old. However, most of the rest of his family was lost to Hitler's ovens. But despite this, as an attorney in America, Nero stepped up to defend the neo-Nazis' right to freedom of speech, no matter how despicable he thought that speech might be. The case cost the ACLU tens of thousands of members. However, the organization and Nero ultimately prevailed, and the neo-Nazis were able to carry out their march in Skokie although they ultimately never did. The case has come to be the exemplar of the breadth of America's free speech protections. Even the Nazis get free speech here, people say. But why did Nero take on the case when there were non-Jews within the ACLU who could have handled it? Why is it important that we protect the free speech rights of even those with whom we vehemently disagree? Nero answers many of those questions in his seminal 1979 book, Defending My Enemy, American Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, and the Risks of Freedom. It's a book that's very popular within the First Amendment community, and definitely within FIRE. We thought this topic of defending my enemy would be a good one to take up. So over the course of the next two weeks, we're going to interview two free speech advocates, Glenn Greenwald and David Baugh, both of whom stood up at various points in their lives to defend the free speech rights of those individuals with whom they vehemently disagreed. We might even make this a continuing theme of So To Speak and pick it up from time to time. Today's interview is with Glenn Greenwald. Glenn is best known for his role in coordinating the National Security Agency revelations that came out in 2013 from Edward Snowden. But before he became a groundbreaking and award-winning journalist with Salon, The Guardian, and his current outfit, The Intercept, he was a lawyer. And not just a lawyer a First Amendment lawyer who, as a gay man of Jewish descent, defended the First Amendment rights of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, much like Aryeh Nearer did in the 1970s. So let's begin this Defending My Enemy series with Glenn. Why did he become interested in constitutional law? Why did he take these neo-Nazi cases? And why is it important that free speech advocates defend the rights of their enemies? And just a quick show note before we begin. Glenn spoke with us from his home in Rio de Janeiro, where he has multiple dogs. So if you hear dogs barking in the background, that's why. So let's begin. So Glenn Greenwald, thanks for coming on the show today. 
Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, absolutely. So Fire has been following your work for a good amount of time now, um, especially on Twitter. You're very active in the free speech conversation. When you were over at Salon, uh, you wrote a lot of articles on free speech topics. But something that really stood out to me was just one line in two profiles of you following the, the Snowden revelations um, about your time as a constitutional litigator defending the rights of neo-Nazis. And so this the show is about defending my enemies, and I wanted to talk with you about that time. But before we jump into that, I wanted to get uh, you know a little bit backstory. What got you interested in free speech issues generally? I think that um, you know, not to be too kind of like introspective or turn your podcast into some sort of therapy session, but. I think if you grow up and, and kind of feel in some way alienated from or excluded by mainstream pieties, um, as I certainly did, you know, growing up as a gay teenager, feeling like there was this majoritarian sentiment um, that was kind of hostile to me. And then at some point I realized that this, this idea that a lot of people seem to have, in fact, seem to have, hold it so fervently that they don't even discuss or debate it. They think it's beyond the realm of debate, namely that being gay is bad or it's wrong. It's something that I actually came to think itself was wrong. Um, and so I think once you get into, once life in some way leads you to start questioning pieties and orthodoxies, you realize um, how wrong pieties and orthodoxies can be. Um, and that the only real outlet for challenging them and correcting their wrongness is to have the freedom to be able to question them and argue against them, no matter how many people believe them to be true. And then when you start looking at history, you see history, the history of ideas and, and you know, intellectual history as being nothing but a series of ideas that at one point were just assumed to be so true that they shouldn't even be questioned or debated, only for some subsequent generation or generations to realize that actually they were completely wrong. And so for me, the thing I think that that triggered this this passion to believe in free speech for me was this recognition that human beings are incredibly fallible. Um, and there should never be any idea that people are so certain is correct um, that they're unwilling to have it challenged. That's, that's actually interesting and maybe getting a little bit ahead of some other things I wanted to talk about. But one thing that FIRE sees on campus right now is that um, calls by students to censor opinions that might be offensive to minority groups, um, whether they be uh, like gays, for example, or um, me members of ethnic minorities. Uh, do you think this is wrongheaded um, and actually hurts the cause of other minorities? It's wrongheaded for so many reasons. Um, first of all, the trajectory of minority rights in the United States, and I would say generally in the Western world, is that minority groups begin as this kind of marginalized group, and they have to fight for their right to be treated better and then equally. And the way they fight for that is by making arguments, by persuading their fellow citizens, by engaging in the marketplace of ideas, by protesting. All the things the First Amendment and concepts of free speech are intended to protect are the greatest assets to people who find themselves in the position of oppressed minorities, because those are the tools and the weapons that allow you to fight against this marginalization and oppression. And certainly the history of, of LGBTs in the United States has been very one very much of um, using these First Amendment rights in order to change people's minds. That certainly was the history um, of African Americans and other racial minorities is using the right to protest and the right to speak out. 
um, in order to change people's minds. And so of all the groups, of all the factions that should be most vehemently interested in protecting um, those rights, it should be minority groups because those are their, their greatest friends. I mean, that's the idea, the whole point of the First Amendment is to say, um, we're really afraid of what majorities, unjust majorities, might do to minorities. And so to protect against majoritarian oppression, we're going to protect these rights and guarantee that everybody has them because these are the rights that protect minorities. So to see minorities then turn around and kind of wage war on those very rights, which should be their best friends, I think is really disturbing. And the other aspect of it is is that, and, and this, of course, is always at the heart of the, the free speech fight, which is that a lot of people who want to abridge free speech somehow convince themselves, and I genuinely find it baffling, but they somehow convince themselves that if they institutionalize a framework that says that certain ideas are going to be banished and people who express them will be punished, that somehow the ideas that are prohibited and banished are always going to be the ones that they dislike. And it never seems to occur to them that they're really vulnerable once they institutionalize these, these, this, this framework that says certain ideas are, are to be banned and punished, um, that that can be turned around and used against them. And particularly if you're a minority, if you're you know, an LGBT citizen or a Latino or an African-American, um, you're particularly vulnerable to having majorities say that your ideas are now off limits. You should be the last people who want to legitimize this idea that certain that majorities have the right to suppress ideas because it's certainly it's almost inevitable that that's going to be used against you even if at the moment you think that that you're using it to your favor. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. One of the things that first amendment free speech ad- advocates have a trouble responding to are calls from those on uh, who want to institute a censorship regime on or off campus. Um, who say that, you know, is there ever going to be a point really where we're going to want um, criticism of minorities? I mean, why, you know, we've reached the end of history at this point. We've created this tolerant society. You know, what good does having this speech um, exist? Uh, what, how does that push forward progress at all? Um, and I, I really liked what you discussed in your uh, article for Salon about Mayor Rahm Emanuel and actually some other city leaders across the country's ban of Chick-fil-A, you said free speech rights mean the government officials are barred from creating lists of approved and disapproved political ideas and using the power of the state to enforce those preferences. And I think people are starting to realize the power uh, that we're giving these government officials if we give them these rights um, with you know the rise of people like Donald Trump who very explicitly say it. He, that he wants to go after journalists. So, you know, how do you respond to that sort of argument um, that, you know, when, how is this speech useful in any way at this point? Well, first of all, I mean, look at the, the Chick-fil-A example um, where Rahm Emanuel and a couple of other mayors in cities where gay rights are favored decided that they were going to punish businesses who didn't believe in the kind of conventional view now on, on gay issues, which is to treat gay people equally. The owner of Chick-fil-A, as I remember, um, donated money to anti-gay causes, um, actually believed in the right of businesses to discriminate. And so people teared when, when Rahm Emanuel said, as the mayor, I'm going to bar businesses from operating that have views that I dislike. And the reason why that's just so appalling to see people cheering something like that is because maybe that old lead to a good result for you in Chicago, but how about in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, or Salt Lake City, Utah, or 
other places where um, people still believe that homosexuality is immoral and that gay people are going to hell and don't deserve equal rights. There are still a lot of places in the United States where those ideas prevail. So imagine a, a mayor of one of those places using the power that you've just now said that mayors get to use, saying, you know what, I'm going to bar businesses from operating in my, my city whose owners give money to pro-gay causes or who have anti-discrimination policies that treat um, LGBT employees equally with others. I don't see how you have any basis for objecting to mayors who do that who punish businesses who have ideas that the mayors dislike and that the majority of the, the population in that city dislike if you cheer when, when Rahm Emanuel does. The other thing, you know, I think is, is so important is that, you know, to, to the question of, well, how is it ever beneficial to have a debate about, say, you know, racial equality or, or uh, the, the equality of sexual minorities, whether you like it or not, there are a lot of people in the country and in the world who continue to harbor ideas about race and sexual orientation. Um, and gender equality, and a whole variety of other topics that aren't reflective of the majority view in the United States now on these questions. There are a lot of racists in the United States. There are a lot of people who hold the view that LGBT citizens are unequal or that homosexuality is immoral or that women don't deserve equal treatment in the workplace and a whole variety of other views like that. The Donald Trump campaign shows that, so do lots of other things. Why would you want to have a, an environment, especially on college campuses, which is supposed to be devoted to having young people engage ideas and learn how to defend their views? But anywhere, why would you want to have a society that pretends that those ideas don't exist? If you ban bad ideas, you don't make them go away. If anything, you probably strengthen them because now those people have a cause. They feel like they're oppressed. They feel like they're martyrs. And in some sense, they are oppressed because they are banned from expressing their ideas. I would much rather have bad ideas come out and breathe in the light so they can be engaged and critiqued and dissected and you can change people's minds than have those people have to hide and, and um, sort of slink in the dark with their ideas where I think it becomes much more dangerous. Yeah. Fire co-founder Harvey Silverglade, who was a criminal defense attorney up in Boston, always said he, he, he has a Jewish background. He always says he wants to know who the Nazi is in the room so he knows not to turn his back to them. Um, and, right. and Fire President Greg Lukianoff always said the censorships, it's like, it's like taking Xanax for your syphilis. It'll, uh, make you, it mm -hmm. might make you feel better, but it won't, won't actually solve the problem. So I want to get back to your time as a constitutional litigator. Um, and if I'm correct, you, you spent some time defending the neo-Nazi Matthew Hale. Um, I don't know if there was any other defenses that you put forth. But why, why did you take those cases um, when you could have you know, worked in any other sort of law? I'm, I'm sure you had a ton of potential clients. Yeah, I mean, the first case that I, that I took um, was actually uh, Matthew Hale had um, graduated law school. And he took the bar exam in the state of Illinois, and he passed. And he had no criminal record. And he applied for admission to the bar, and the Character and Fitness Committee um, intervened and held a hearing and said that because of his political views, his racist political views, he, did, he, he lacked the requisite character necessary to be a member of the Illinois Bar and rejected his application. And the reason I found that so disturbing beyond what we've been discussing about this principle that people should never be punished for their, the content of their ideas is because the model they were using of excluding people from practicing law due to uh, their unpopular political ideas was actually pioneered in the 1950s at the height of McCarthyism 
um, when a whole variety of people who belong to the Communist Party were denied admission to bar associations around the country and were denied the right to earn their livelihood and practice law after graduating law school and passing the bar exam because of their the content of their political views. And so, of course, you can say, um, well, I think that communists have better views than racist, although a lot of people wouldn't think that. But even if you think that, um, you should not want to endorse a framework or legitimate a framework that says that people can be denied their livelihood and be assessed to have bad character um, because a group of lawyers decides that they hold political views that are so toxic that it, it reflects on their character. Um, and so I got involved in, in, in that defense um, and then saw that there were a lot of other attacks on the free speech rights of, of neo-Nazis and white supremacists and kind of extremist anti-immigration groups um, where a, a lot of lawsuits were being brought against these groups and tended to, 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 to bankrupt them, um, but more so to set precedent that says that if somebody has sufficiently bad ideas, they can be held liable for the consequences of those ideas. Um, and again, that was a theory that was used in the 1960s by the states of Alabama and Mississippi to try and bankrupt the NAACP by saying their leaders give such inflammatory speeches that they inspire their followers to commit violence and burn down stores, and so people can be held liable for the consequences of their bad speech. Um, and the Supreme Court ultimately in, in Claiborne versus the NAACP, in a great um, opinion, said that the First Amendment doesn't allow you to be held responsible for the consequences of your, your protected speech. Um, and yet they were waging war on that really critical free speech precedent um, by trying to apply it to the, to the most hated people in society, which were neo-Nazis. And I realized that if you want that, that's the tactic, right? That when governments and, and other um, bodies of power want to legitimate a certain power that people might feel uncomfortable with, they always target um, the most unpopular people, the easiest case to sort of let it go. Um, and that's why if you want to defend those rights, you have to go to those places where people are expressing the worst and most unpopular views. Was taking those cases a challenge? Did you have any trouble separating the person from the principal? I mean, what was the working relationship like, for example, with a guy like Matthew Hale? I mean, it was, it was, it, there, there were interesting challenges because obviously um, the group that he led, which is the World Church of the Creator, um, railed against not just African Americans, but Jews, um, were, was very homophobic. Um, and and yet, I mean, I was able to understand that I wasn't representing um, or supporting their ideology. I was representing and supporting the First Amendment. Um, and so I, because I believe so much in free speech, I never really had a kind of conflict. I mean, there were times I had to read their materials um, or listen to their them give depositions that I was defending, and they would say some really heinous things. Um, but as long as you understand why you're doing this work, um, and I understood I was doing this work in order to ensure that there wasn't this kind of erosion of free speech rights in these cases as a result of bad precedent, um, then for me it was, you know, it was sort of a work of passion. And I did a lot of it pro bono, actually. Um, I looked at it as my, my pro bono work, my contribution to the society that, that I did work for free um, because I believe so strongly in that cause. Yeah. And eventually you got, you got out of law. 
And I, I had read that you spent a lot of time in conservative chat rooms and at one point saying that you believe in the clash of ideas and that in these chat rooms, your ideas were meaningfully challenged. Is this, is this sort of clash of ideas thing a thread throughout your life, uh, starting with your time in law school, uh, moving on through your, your legal career and on to your time as a writer or just engager in the political dialogue? Well, I mean, that was actually a really formative experience that, that those, those conservative chat rooms. It was sort of like the beginning of the internet. Um, and, and I remember there was um, my, my uh, law school roommate. You know, I went to law school in, in New York. Um, I had gone to college in Washington. Um, you know, I was just like young, you know, gay man in my early 20s in Washington and New York in these East Coast sophisticated cities. So I had this kind of like caricatured view of conservatives, especially social conservatives in the middle of the country. And my college room, my, my law school roommate um, was this woman who was dating this this guy whose mother was this hardcore Rush Limbaugh supporter or listener. And she went and visited their house and saw that this woman was in these chat rooms. And it was it was a chat room sponsored by the National Review and the Heritage Foundation. And so we went in there kind of on a lark, basically to just cause trouble and make fun of them and just, you know, have like a good laugh at the expense of what we viewed as these kind of like retrograde idiots. And we did do that at first. That was, we just caused trouble and we laughed at them. And then we started actually being drawn in because a lot of them were extremely smart and very informed and were good debaters. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started spending a lot of time debating with them. And it started challenging a lot of my just preconceptions, things that I never just, that I always assumed were just unchallengeably true. I found myself having to defend it on, from, from a pretty formidable intellectual attack. And then the more time I spent in there, the better I got to know them as people. And then I actually went one time, I flew to, to Indiana um, for this hotel, and it was a kind of meeting of um, all these, and these weren't like, you know, National Review, New York conservatives. These were like middle of the country, mega church, Rush Limbaugh listening, social conservatives. Um, and just like I regarded them at first, they regarded me. I mean, they knew I was young and a lawyer in New York and Jewish and gay. And so a lot of those barriers broke down and we actually kind of got to like each other. And, and I, and I just, a lot of the certainty and the smugness that I had and how I regarded people like that got really broken down. Um, and I realized that it was so much better to force yourself to engage in these kinds of, you know, these challenges. Sometimes you're, you'll be more fortified in, in, in the rightness of, of your beliefs, and other times you'll start questioning yourself and, and changing your views or at least modifying them or being open to the fact that maybe you're wrong. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, everything I've done in my life, I studied philosophy, I was on the college and high school debate team, is very much been geared toward this kind of clash of opposing ideas is the ultimate test for who's actually right and who's actually wrong. And I've learned a lot from that. I've evolved a great deal as a result of that. And so anything that suppresses that or tries to eliminate it in the name of righteousness and certainty, um, I find really pernicious and, and really dangerous and, and oftentimes a lot bigger of a threat um, than the bad ideas themselves that people who think that way are trying to, to, um, to censor. And more recently, of course, your work is famous for the privacy issues uh, as a result of the Snowden revelations. One, one thing, one thread I think that's been missing from that conversation is the nexus between privacy issues and free expression. Um, the idea that um, a lack of privacy might have a chilling effect on free expression. Is that something uh, that 
you can speak to, or have has you have you seen that as a missing thread in this conversation? Totally. I mean, first of all, you know, the, 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 there's one obvious way that that the lack of privacy threatens First Amendment rights, which is if everybody is being monitored and your there are records of your communications. It almost is impossible, for example, for confidential sources to come to journalists because metadata is being uh, stored and monitored and everyone knows who speak. the government always knows who's speaking to everybody else. And so it makes doing journalism almost impossible. I mean, you can't have a free press in the context of a, a ubiquitous surveillance state. But, the, but free speech is also just as threatened um, in less obvious ways, but I think in, in ways that are more important. And actually, I remember I had this... Uh, experience, this was years before um, I ever worked with Edward Snowden, I actually, I, I was, uh, I remember I, I wrote about WikiLeaks um, for the first time, it was like 2009, and this was before anybody even knew about WikiLeaks, it was before they did any of their big leaks, there was an article in the New York Times, and, and it said basically the U.S. Army had declared this obscure group that nobody's ever heard of, called WikiLeaks, an enemy of the state. Um, and so I kind of thought to myself, well, any group that's being declared an enemy of the state by the U.S. government is probably one that deserves more attention, probably <laughs> even more support. So I went and researched them and found they were doing all these great transparency projects, um, exposing corrupt factions, corporate and political factions. And I interviewed Julian Assange, and I wrote about them, and I said, you know, the one thing they're really missing, they're sitting on all these big lakes, lakes. They, they are missing financial support. And so I encourage all my readers to go support them and send money to them, and you can do it by PayPal or Bankwire. And in response to that, I had a huge number of people, like in my comment section and, um, and at events that I would attend and by email, and not like crazy paranoid people, just like regular ordinary people say, you know, along the lines of like, look, I, I totally – get what you're saying about WikiLeaks. They seem great. I would love to support them. The problem is, is that I'm really worried that if I send money to them electronically, that I'm going to end up on a government list somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if they get characterized as a terrorist organization, maybe one day I'll be accused of aiding and abetting terrorists or providing material support to terrorism. And it was remarkable to me that these people who understood that they, they were being monitored and everything they were doing, including their political donations, had pretty much unilaterally, like voluntarily relinquished a core First Amendment right, which is, you know, the right to support groups that you agree with, with donations or other work, because they were petrified that they would be monitored and put on a government list somewhere and ultimately be punished for it in some way. And that, to me, really reflected how crucial privacy is um, to free expression. And, you know, there are all these really fascinating um, psychological studies where if you sit somebody down in a room and you put a tape recorder on a, a table, or even if you do something like subconscious that makes them feel like subconsciously monitored, like put a picture of an eyeball on the wall facing them, people, like researchers have found that if you ask them questions, political questions, like do you support the legalization of drugs, do you support you know, the lowering of the age of consent, people are so much freer and how they answer those questions if they don't have any indicia of being monitored and are much more constrained and um, kind of submissive and compliant when they feel like they're being watched. A watch society does breed submission and compliance and obedience because um, people then start behaving in a way and forming ideas and expressing ideas that are the, that they're, they're byproduct of, of what society demands of them. 
free expression can really thrive only when people are free to kind of explore and be creative and dissent without other judgmental eyes being cast upon them. And this relationship between free speech and privacy is really profound. As a result of this, you know, w- uh, wider threat to privacy, do you think that's the biggest threat to free speech today? Do you think, um, and do you think that the future looks brighter or darker for those rights? I certainly think that a ubiquitous surveillance state is one of the biggest threats to free speech because the internet was supposed to be this realm of unfettered free expression and free political activism, which it was when anonymity was possible in the early days and and it really enabled people to express themselves and, and, and explore. And I think a lot of that has been destroyed by the accurate perception that the internet is now this kind of, rather than being this, this, innovation of liberalization and democratization um, and emancipation from all these constraints that instead has become probably the most unprecedented tool of social coercion and monitoring and control and has really lost its its free speech um, promise because of of the loss of privacy, because everything is just so monitored and and it breeds this kind of submission. I do, though, think that... um, you know, other things have become a really big threat to free speech. I think um, fear-mongering over terrorism um, has enabled lots of Western European countries and increasingly the U.S. Um, to enact laws and other policies that punish speech in the name of stopping terrorism. Yeah, I see you've um, come to the defense of the... Anwar al-Awlaki and ISIS sympathizers. I saw you get into it um, with with an NPR person uh, back in the day about the threat that uh, speech that might be perceived to be uh, sympathetic to terrorism uh, was unconstitutional. Yeah, I mean, you have you have like you have in France, you have people being arrested for wearing T-shirts advocating a boycott of Israel. Um, in the UK, you've had Muslim teenagers who have been charged criminally and prosecuted for things like posting a Facebook post expressing sympathy with Afghan insurgents who attack British troops. Um, you know, you have all kinds of terrorism prosecutions that are based overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, on people's free speech, whether it's uploading YouTube clips that are supposedly glorify terrorism and the like. Um, so, and, then, and then beyond that, I mean, I think that you know, this, this ethos that has emerged within academic institutions and, and communities, um, which to me is you know, particularly threatening because if anywhere there should be a protection of free expression, it should be in academia. Um, this idea that in order to have a meaningful academic institution, you have to bar uh, the expression of unpleasant ideas, um, I think also is a major threat. Yeah. What, what do you make of what's happened on campuses over the past couple of months? Well, I mean, you know, it's funny because this is not really that much of a new controversy, right? I mean, the idea of like PC wars goes back to at least the 1990s, um, you know, if not, if not earlier. Um, there were certainly fights I remember when I was in both college and, 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 and the law school um, over that, but it's really seemed to intensify um, in the past several years, um, and I'm not actually sure why, um, but, you know, there, there's some ways that, that it manifests that people pay a lot of attention to, like when um, African-American and gay groups and Latino groups try to, to suppress ideas that they say are hurtful to minorities, but then there's also a really big trend, as Fire knows, um, of trying to outlaw or criminalize 
um, activism on behalf of Palestinians or against yeah. Israeli occupation by equating it with anti-Semitism and then using the same framework and the same rationale to criminalize or outlaw or ban that as well. And, and so you know, that to me illustrates the point we started off with, which is if you think that you like this kind of approach because in, in one instance it's suppressing ideas that you think should be suppressed, you should look to places that are probably not very far from you where you'll see the same framework being used to suppress ideas that you probably think ought to be um, permitted. And so that's if, 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 if it doesn't offend you on some ethical or moral level, the idea of censorship, it should at least offend you on a tactical and pragmatic one. Yeah. Well, I know you're a busy guy and I want to let you go here uh, shortly, but I always ask, like to ask our guests one question at the end. Um, do you have a free speech hero? Uh, someone that you look up to in, in doing this work? Well, I mean, I I certainly, you know, have always admired the ACLU, and I do think that the AC, the decision of, of the ACLU to, you know, represent neo-Nazis in, in Skokie, notwithstanding the fact that so many of their, their lawyers and donors um, were Jewish or otherwise offended by what they did. They lost a huge amount of, nice. of support and donations from that. People quit their organization, um, and yet they did it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and just the willingness of that organization to to just so boldly represent, you know, Christian extremist groups, Fred Phelps, the Ku Klux Klan, um, exactly all the organizations and groups and people who are most anathema to their membership and to their supporters, um, to me has kind of set the framework for um, how free speech defenses should be practiced. And of course, if you go further back, um, you know, you have people like John Adams and, and a lot of the early founders who actually talked about and, and took cases um, where they represented British troops accused of murdering colonists or other extremely unpopular um, causes on the principle that free speech only matters if you're defending it in the cases where the views you hate most are, are under attack. So that's kind of the, the lineage that inspires me most. Yeah. Well, great, Glenn. Let our listeners know what you're doing now and what they should check out after this show. Yeah, I mean, I'm working, you know, mostly at The Intercept. Um, we've been covering a lot of different topics. We certainly cover free speech um, mm -hmm. a great deal. We've done a lot of work on you know, the suppression of a variety of ideas on college campuses, including attacks on pro-Palestinian groups like we discussed. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, free speech is always going to be something that I cover a great deal in, in whatever venues I'm doing it. And while I'm here, I mean, I should say, um, and I have said before, that I think, you know, FIRE has done fantastic work as well, um, precisely because uh, the organization doesn't discriminate or get more active in defense of views it likes and less active in, in defense of views it dislikes. It's it's the free speech as a principle um, that, that FIRE is defending. So that I think I see that very much as part of that same heritage. Well, we certainly appreciate the compliment, Glenn, and thank you so much for calling in all the way over from Rio de Janeiro. All right, great. Great talking to you. That was Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept. Tune in two weeks from now for the second installment of our series on Defending My Enemy for an interview with David Baugh. David is a black, Richmond, Virginia-based criminal defense attorney who in the late 1990s defended the First Amendment rights of an imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. It was a case that ultimately made its way up to the Supreme Court. David was a fantastic and entertaining interview, and trust me, you won't want to miss this one. And you won't miss it if you subscribe to this podcast. And while you're at it, rate us as well. It's the easiest thing you can do to help us get more ears on the show. You can also follow us on Twitter, 
at twitter.com slash free speech talk. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. That is so to speak podcast. And you can email us at so to speak at the fire.org. We are always happy to get listener feedback and entertain ideas for future shows. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. Thanks for listening. Thank you.